Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on diagnosis and management of chronic constipation. I'm Dr. M. Susan Burke, and I'm a clinical associate professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. I am joined by Dr. Darren Brenner, who is an associate professor of medicine and surgery in the gastroenterology department at Northwestern University, as well as the director of the neurogastromotility and functional bowel programs. In this podcast, uh, we will review the diagnosis and workup of chronic constipation with emphasis on CIC, or chronic idiopathic constipation, and IBS-C, or irritable bowel syndrome, with constipation. And we will provide guidance on current treatments for constipation. Dr. Brenner and I will walk you step-by-step through real-case presentations to achieve these goals, and we'll include a discussion of some alternative situations and how they might differ. So we're going to get started with a case. Claire is a 52-year-old woman presenting for further evaluation of her progressive changes in bowel habits. These began about five years ago. And prior to this change, she was passing one formed bowel movement per day. Over time, she's seen this interval increase, and she's experiencing alternating constipation and diarrhea. Unfortunately, now she can go up to a week without a bowel movement, and then she'll pass about 8 to 10 hard and loose stools over the course of the following 48 hours. Once she feels completely evacuated, then she starts this process all over again. Over this 48-hour period, she can spend as much as four hours on the toilet. She admits to progressive abdominal distension and cramping, which eventually improve with the passage of multiple bowel movements. She's denying any history of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse and does not live a sedentary lifestyle. She hasn't had any vaginal deliveries, and she denies any fecal incontinence. She hasn't noted any blood or mucus in her stool. She denies fever, chills, night sweats, changes in her appetite, or any weight loss. And there's no history of any GI disorders or illnesses. Her symptoms have led to difficulty getting to work on time, as you can imagine having trouble concentrating at work because she doesn't feel comfortable, and she's also having trouble enjoying social functions. In fact, she often avoids going out with her friends because she's so uncomfortable. She denies having any diagnostic studies performed prior to her visit with you. Therapeutically, she's tried exercising more, and now she's drinking eight glasses of water a day. Unfortunately, these changes haven't been helpful at all. She's also tried fiber in the form of methyl cellulose, but this increased her abdominal distension. 
Given the recurrent diarrhea and difficulty finding a bathroom when she's not at home, she's also attempted to use loperamide, but this did not change her patterns either. On review of systems, there has been nothing contributory noted. So past history, she does have hypothyroidism, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. She has had two C-sections, but as noted, no vaginal delivery. She's on levothyroxine, metoprolol, lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, and simvastatin. No allergies and no family history of GI disorders or malignancy. Socially, she's married in a good relationship. Her, she has two children in college. She's a non-smoker, drinks two to three glasses of wine, friends every week. Her exam shows her vitals to be uh, unremarkable, including a BMI of 21.2, the no distress, H-E-E-N-T, cardiovascular, pulmonary, unremarkable. Abdomen is soft, non-tender, with some mild distension today, but without guarding or rebound tenderness. Her extremities are without cyanosis, clubbing, or edema, and neurologically, she's intact. Perianal exam shows no hemorrhoids, fissures, fistulae, excoriations, and she has a positive anal wing. On digital rectal exam, her resting and squeeze tone is normal with bare down intrarectal pressure increasing, and she's able to pass the examiner's finger. There is minimal brown stool noted on the glove. Lab studies show the CBC, BMP, and LFTs all being normal. So she's here sitting in our office. What are our initial thoughts? So based on the patient's history and exam, what's in our differential? And I'll turn it over to Darren. First of all, what's the difference between CIC and IBS with constipation, Darren? So that used to be an easier question to answer. You know, in the GI literature and, and in clinical practice, we use Rome criteria, which is an established set of criteria to define these disorders, and they do differentiate between functional constipation and irritable bowel syndrome of constipation. The previous permutation of these disorders made it a little bit easier because pain was not noted to be a component of the symptom profile in people with chronic idiopathic constipation, but is the sine qua non or predominant symptom we see with irritable bowel syndrome, whether it be constipation or diarrhea. With the advent of the Rome 4 criteria, which were presented to us as practitioners in 2016, the committee notes that people with constipation can have pain. It becomes a little bit difficult to differentiate these two populations. The way I do it in my own clinical practice is based on the frequency and the severity of the pain. Remember, as I just mentioned, when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, pain has to be there. It is the symptom that must be present. So if somebody comes in with other constipation symptoms like straining and complete evacuation, sensations of mechanical obstruction, but they do not have pain, then that's not irritable bowel syndrome. If someone has pain and they get some improvement or now even some worsening of that pain when they have a bowel movement, then that pain is there uh, most of the time, then you're probably seeing a patient with IBS. If you have a person that complains more of abdominal discomfort, bloating, distension that progresses over time without a bowel movement, that may be more so related to chronic idiopathic constipation. 
In reality, there are some subtle differences in the way that we initiate treatment for these patients. By the time they get to academic centers, the medications we use now have been pretty much approved for both indications. So what should Claire's initial workup include, and are you going to treat her today, or do you need to work her up first? You know, she presents with a pretty classic and typical history for chronic idiopathic constipation. She denies most of the alarm signs or symptoms that we're concerned about. She does meet age-appropriate guideline recommendations for colon cancer screening, so I'm going to set her up for a colonoscopy. But I want to mention that if she was 30 years old and she'd had these symptoms for 20, 25 years, then in this particular situation, a colonoscopy would be warranted. The only thing I might do in my clinical practice today is to check a TSH and possibly a reflexive free T4. She does have a history of hypothyroidism. She is taking levothyroxine. And if she's subtherapeutic in her dose, that could be causing some of the changes in her bowel symptoms and patterns. How are you going to reassure her if she's worried about IBD or cancer? Like, uh, what are you going to tell her? But I'm going to tell her that to this point, there's been no evidence of bleeding. She's not losing weight. There hasn't been a major significant change in her bowel habits. She has no family history. And at her age, the likelihood is very low, but she does need appropriate screening guidelines. And we do need to perform a colonoscopy more so to look for polyps than my concerns for cancer. With respect to inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, I would tell her that these usually present in a different way. Most of these patients present with severe abdominal pain. The changes in bowel habits are more so diarrhea than constipation. These don't come in spurts where they have periods of symptoms for a couple of days and then have no symptoms. Most of these patients are going to present with recurrent diarrhea, probably some hematochesia, and some abnormalities in their lab values, specifically hypoalbuminemia, is a common one that we see. So you're talking about some of these alarm symptoms. Uh, that's part of how we're going to direct our workup. Um, what labs are you that's right. doing? Again, she's had the CBC. She's had the basic metabolic panel and the liver test. From my perspective at this point, the only thing I'm concerned about is that history of hypothyroidism and checking a TSH and a free T4. Okay. Are you going to consider anything beyond a colonoscopy, like a abdominal CT imaging? I don't think that I would get an abdominal CT at this point. She hasn't given me anything in her history that would indicate that's necessary. She does have this alternating constipation diarrhea pattern. And based on her subjective history, it sounds more like constipation with overflow diarrhea, which we see commonly. These are people who come in and say they don't have bowel movements for a, in most cases, finite period of time. And then they pass hard little stools, hard little pellet-like stools. And once those are out, the stools become progressively softer. And when they're completely evacuated, they start the process all over again. She's tried some fibers. She's tried some standard treatments for constipation, like increased exercise and water consumption. And those have failed. And now she's concerned about the diarrhea and she's using loperamide. So I'm a little bit concerned about where she falls on this spectrum. And in this situation, I may just obtain an abdominal x-ray to look and see if there's a higher amount of stool burden than we see normally. I don't think I would consider a motility study in her, but would you, when would you consider motility studies? Sure. I usually follow the guidelines and the algorithms that come through the American College of Gastroenterology and the American Gastroenterologic Association, and we're pretty steadfast on this. 
If there are no major alarm signs or symptoms, the person has been screened appropriate for colon cancer, then we recommend a couple of trials of evidence-based therapies. And if the evidence-based therapies fail, which are treating slow transit constipation, and in many cases, irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, then we'll move on to motility testing. So you brought up this Rome criteria. Do you want to go over that a little bit more now? Sure. And what we're showing you here are the Rome criteria specifically for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. I'll highlight a few different things. Number one, if you look at the Rome 3 criteria, it says the patients can have abdominal pain or discomfort, whereas Rome 4, which is the updated criteria, says it must be abdominal pain. And it's important to note that the Rome 4 criteria was established specifically to homogenize criteria for international research trials. So they're a little less what I like to call clinical friendly, but there are advantages and disadvantages to both sets of criteria. A lot of our patients do present with discomfort, but a lot of the languages around the world don't have a definition for discomfort, which is why it was removed. Furthermore, if you look at the Rome 3 criteria, they said patients had to have symptoms three days a month in the past three months, and Rome 4 now says you have to have symptoms at least one day a week. Again, I have a lot of patients who present with intermittent symptoms a couple of weeks a month where they're bad, and then they can be fine for a couple of weeks. And certainly there's literature that suggests that the symptoms can be worse in women perimenstrually. So in my clinical practice, a lot of the patients that I see and I define clinically with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation do not meet this one-day-a-week criteria. There are also changes in what I like to call the secondary criteria. If you look at Rome 3, they said when you have a bowel movement, you'll have some improvement in your pain. And Rome 4 says there'll just be a visceral perception in the change in your pain when you have a bowel movement, indicating that people can still have improvements, but they may notice a worsening of their pain as well, and I certainly see this in my clinical practice. The other change between Rome 3 and Rome 4, Rome 3 said when the pain first emerged, was it associated with a change in stool frequency and or form? That can be very difficult for some patients because their symptoms may date back 30 or 40 years, leading to a recall bias. And what Rome 4 now says is that on the days that you have pain, is there a change in your stool form or your stool frequency, with the most important thing being the stool form because we subrogate the different types of irritable bowel syndrome into a few different classifications based on the predominant stool type. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of stool type. This is the Bristol stool scale. You can see it is a seven-point um, subjective and objective scale looking at the different types of stools the patients can pass. And we use this to define IBS with constipation, IBS with diarrhea, and IBS of a mixed subtype. As you look across this scale, irritable bowel syndrome with constipation is defined as the passage of a harder lumpy stool, which would be the type 1 and type 2 stools you see on the scale, more than 25% of the time, but the passage of loose, mushy, or watery stools, which would be Bristol six or seven stools, less than 25% of the time. So what if she noted small amounts of bright red bleeding on the stool or the toilet paper with her BMs? Would that change anything? At this point, no. In the vast majority of cases, this is usually related to hemorrhoids. But again, we're talking about a woman who's 52 years of age, I'm going to be performing a screening colonoscopy anyway. I didn't see anything abnormal on the digital rectal exam, so I'm concerned there could be something else in there, and I would look with a colonoscope. And it sounded like if she were 32 instead of 52, you would still consider a colonoscopy on her. 
If she was bleeding or had alarm signs or symptoms, yes. In the past few years, we've been identifying cases of colorectal cancer in younger, otherwise healthy individuals, and we don't know why. We have not figured out why this is occurring, so our antenna are a little bit higher uh, than they were in the past. However, if she was a 32-year-old woman presented with 20 years of constipation without any significant changes in her symptoms, and there were no alarm signs or symptoms, then I would not perform a colonoscopy. Would any other comorbidities, say like diabetes, change how you work her up? Probably not. We know that the uh, major GI consequence of diabetes is constipation, but we see that along the spectrum of what we call slow transit constipation, which means stool doesn't move through the GI tract quickly enough. And we usually treat that with standard laxatives. So it wouldn't change my algorithm at this point. I would still recommend a course of a few different evidence-based therapies for the chronic constipation. And if her TSH were normal, could it still be possible that hypothyroidism might be playing a role? If her free C4 or T3 were low, um, you know, I don't usually modify levothyroxine levels. But if those were low, I may refer her back to her primary care physician to have that discussion and see if those dosages should be modified. So, Darren, does the diagnosis of CIC versus IBS with constipation change how you approach treatment in patient? In this situation, it does. Um, if you think about it, when we talk about chronic idiopathic constipation, a significant percentage of these individuals are gonna deny pain. And those that do endorse pain, usually it's a secondary consequence or manifestation of the constipation. And in this patient population, there are a lot of good over-the-counter therapies that can be used to treat these individuals, including medications from the osmotic class, like PEG 3350, the stimulant class, including bisacodyl, or even fiber. And usually when I'm talking about fiber, I recommend the soluble fibers. Irritable bowel syndrome, if you recall, again, the sinequinone symptom is pain. And the over-the-counter therapies really do not address the pain component. In fact, the most recent American College of Gastroenterology monograph on IBS recommends against the use of PEG 3350 to treat irritable bowel syndrome with constipation because in the clinical trials, while PEG 3350 improved stool frequency and stool texture, it did not improve abdominal pain or discomfort. So my patients with IBSC, I go to different classes of medications as my first-line interventions, and these include the secretagogue class. Medications include lubiprostone, linaclotide, and placanotide, which are all FDA-approved for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. And if you're talking about chronic constipation, another drug called pucalopride, which was recently approved and is a serotonin serotonergic agonist. Can, can you elaborate a little bit? You mentioned about you usually offer soluble fiber. What what are some examples of soluble versus insoluble fiber? Sure. So if you look at the data across the board, fiber appears to be effective for treating IBSD symptoms, but it is not a significant effect. If you drill down further, you see the data really suggests using soluble fibers. Most common ones are coming from ispugulahus or psyllium. How about Chloride channel stimulants and guanylate cyclase C agonists. Are some of these agents better than others for CIC versus IBS C? 
It's interesting. It's important to note that multiple medications in these classes, the, the guanylate cyclase C agonists, again, being linapatide or placanotide, are approved for both chronic idiopathic constipation and irritable bowel syndrome of constipation. The chloride channel agonist lubiprostone is approved for chronic constipation, irritable bowel syndrome with constipation in women, and opioid-induced constipation. There are really no head-to-head -head trials suggesting that one is better than the others, although I will say again, when it comes to chronic idiopathic constipation, I use the over-the-counter therapies first, but these agents are my first-line agents for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation because they've all shown to improve the abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating symptoms that come along with irritable bowel syndrome or constipation. Again, lubiprostone being a chloride C2 channel agonist, linaclotide, placanotide being guanylate cyclase C agonist, and fucalopride being a serotonin subtype 4 receptor agonist. Recall again that lubiprostone, linaclotide, and placanotide are all approved for irritable bowel syndrome with constipation and chronic idiopathic constipation, whereas pucalopride is only approved for chronic idiopathic constipation. So what are you going to give Claire in your office? What are you starting out with to help her in uh, managing her symptoms? So as I look across the spectrum of symptoms that Claire is experiencing, you know, again, to me, she seems like a patient has chronic idiopathic constipation with overflow diarrhea. There are no alarm signs or symptoms. I will perform a screening colonoscopy. But before she leaves the office, I would probably prescribe an osmotic laxative like polyethylene glycol 3350. And I'd recommend it once daily. So assuming she does well on whatever treatment we outline for her, would you even consider weaning her off medication? And if you would, how would you do that? Usually I wait for the patient to ask me. We know that these are chronic conditions. We know that they aren't cured. But at times people certainly come back to our offices, stop their therapies, and say that they're doing just fine. Um, PEG-3350 and most of the over-the-counter agents used in standard doses are very safe. So I have no concerns about using them long-term, but I certainly never stop the patient from trying a drug holiday if they want to stop the medication and see how they do. If they're using a standard over-the-counter therapy and a regular dose, I'll just have them stop the dose and see how they do over the course of the next week or so and follow up with me at that time. Uh, how long does it take for these agents to even start working for a patient uh, before you decide whether it's a treatment failure? a good question. With the osmotic laxatives, I usually give them two weeks. The stimulant laxatives, I can usually tell in about a week. The newer medications, the secretagogue or the promotility agents, if we look across the clinical literature, because there's more robust evidence-based data for these medications, usually we see significant benefits by the end of the first few weeks that are maintained over time. Um, some of these medications have single doses, others have multiple doses, but I can usually define if the patient is going to get a treatment response within the course of the first month. When would you want to evaluate someone like Claire for a structural issue like a pelvic floor problem, especially since she's had two children? Now, they weren't vaginally delivered, but still, would she have or possibly have a pelvic floor problem? Yeah, we always have to be concerned about pelvic floor dysfunction, and that's part of the reason why we ask about the histories of abuse. Abuse in PTSD is 
linked very highly to pelvic floor dysfunction. We want to look for this very early in our evaluation because realistically, if somebody's pelvic floor musculature doesn't work, then the response rates to laxatives are only about 5 to 10%. The gold standard of treatment for pelvic floor dysfunction is pelvic floor physical therapy and biofeedback, which improves symptom profiles in about 60 to 80% of individuals in the hands, pardon the pun, of a good pelvic floor physical therapist. So as it was with this patient, when she came into my office, I did a digital rectal exam to look for any evidence of pelvic floor discoordination, and thankfully there wasn't any evidence on my examination. But if we tried a couple of good therapies like PEG 3350 or a stimulant laxative and a secreta gotten, she failed, that would be the point where I would do further dy dynamic testing, and the first test that should be done is anorectal manometry with balloon expulsion testing. Uh, do you have any pearls on effective communication to someone like Claire? And how do we reassure someone like this in the long term, uh, especially if they're worried about cancer or some um, other medical problem? Sure. If I talk to my patients, it's a longstanding issue. When it comes to cancer, I honestly tell them the cat would be out of the bag. If they had something that was causing an obstruction in their GI tract, which was leading to constipation 20 years ago, we'd have known about it. We talk about the alarm signs and symptoms. We talk about the importance of colon cancer screening. I go over the different types of constipation that patients can suffer from. Irritable bowel constipation, slow transit constipation, and evacuation disorders. Um, I answer any questions that they may have, and I talk about the different classes of medications that we can try how long it should take for the medications before they see an effect, whether or not there's going to be a potential rebound effect if they stop the medication, the safety profiles of the medications. And then, of course, an important thing to our patients in this day and age is the cost of the medications. Most importantly, I tell them that they have any questions or concerns after starting the therapies, just to send my, my office a message or to send me an email, and I'll be happy to discuss it with them further. So do you have any final thoughts? You, you've really covered a lot in this session. Um, no. Again, I think this is a standard patient that I see in clinical practice is probably going to respond well to one of the therapies that we previously mentioned. But if they don't work, then again, what I tell my patients are we may just be barking up the wrong tree. The issue may not be a motility issue. It may be a pelvic floor issue, and we'll address that if need be. Well, thank you, Darren. And to our audience, if you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our complimentary podcast episode where we take the same approach with IBS diarrhea predominant uh, case. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.